I wonder if you've ever been part of what you could call a catering catastrophe. A catering catastrophe. Is that what this is? Uh, Amy and I have been married about 11 years now and our wedding day was eventful. We marry a lot of couples, so we, we do pre-marriage counselling and care and, and pray for them. In fact, Russ and Karina was the latest couple that I had the privilege of seeing them, helping them get married, and they had the reception here in Reforming House. We said to Russ and Karina, on your wedding day, there can be a lot of stress and load associated with that day. Everyone wants it to be perfect. Can I give you one hot tip? It never is, and that makes it better. It's not going to be perfect. Things will go wrong. Let me tell you about our wedding day. We had our wedding reception in the Boardwalk Cafe and Restaurant. You may know of it. It's on the lake there because we used to, when we were serving in the CU, we used to um, have our CU and UV dinner there. I proposed to Amy just outside the Boardwalk on a jog one day. Boardwalk manager said it would never happen. She'd never say yes, she did. And we had our wedding reception there. We planned the day... We thought perfectly, except when we got to the wedding reception at the boardwalk, I had neglected to ask, does the boardwalk have a microphone system for the speeches? They do not. If you know the boardwalk and if you haven't been there, I'd recommend going for coffee or for lunch or dinner. Go to the boardwalk and you'll find it's one of those places that if you are trying to talk across a crowd of people on the boardwalk, it is nearly impossible. The slightest noise is amplified by the room. And so here we were giving our speeches at shouting level without a microphone. And then, then uh, we hired a car because we didn't want um, our, I need a Toyota Corona with a faded paint job, but we didn't want it trashed because we wanted it so we can go on our honeymoon on it. And so we hired a car from Poison Motors. And anyway, I couldn't find the groomsmen when it came to the, the, the bridal dance. And I went to find the groomsmen and they, my dear friends, were out trashing the hire car which Amy was not hugely happy with, but I went there to, to say, okay, well, well, let's go back in. My mum calls out from the boardwalk building, Amy's about to throw the bouquet, which I really wanted to see. And all of a sudden I said, just mum, just tell her to wait. And then I hear this, as the bouquet is thrown, and I missed it. I get back into the re- wedding reception. I said, look, uh, she says, where you been? I said, oh, I've just been out of the car. And uh, she says, I'm so tired. I've had a great time. Let's go home. I said, but darling, dancing's important to you. You want to dance? Do you want to have our dance? No, I just want to go to our wedding uh, honeymoon. And so um, we did. We didn't have our dance. And to this day, if I'm at a wedding, I will dance with Amy. I'm not a dancer. I'll dance with her because we didn't have our dance. It didn't go perfectly. And you could say it was a catering catastrophe, but it actually, it actually meant for a memorable day. What about you? Have you had those moments where you felt, you felt, you thought, this is a catering catastrophe? We often do. It doesn't have to be a wedding. It could be a party. It actually just could be anything. Um, We're going to have a membership lunch in our home today for all those interested in checking out our church and what we're about, what makes us tick, asking our questions. It's possible we could have a catering catastrophe. And it's all the more possible in our world because... Well, ever since the last couple of years, everything's a catastrophe now, isn't it? In our society, we catastrophize everything. Someone disagrees with me, that's a catastrophe. My day doesn't go the way I planned, that's a catastrophe. We catastrophize everything. We have no level of just 
it just didn't work out the way I wanted to today. But perhaps you felt there are times in your life it is a catastrophe because it's embarrassing and you just like it to be fixed. Is that what this passage is about? Is it just Jesus coming in and fixing our social embarrassment? It's much more. Jesus has just said last week, we saw in John 1, at the end of John 1, Jesus said last week to Nathaniel, who had that question, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Jesus says, you're going to see greater things. You're going to see angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. That's huge. That's got Old Testament ramifications. It's significant. And then we come to this passage after the great heights of significance of what Jesus just said. And what does he do? He changes water into wine. And we could easily think, that doesn't seem that significant. It just seems like a party trick. Like It just feels like in John chapter 2, with all the expectation for Jesus that we have, is Jesus just warming up? Is he just kind of going, all right, I'm not going to do the big stuff yet, not big guns. I'm just going to open up with water and a wine. Is that what this is? Actually, we'll see it's much, much more. This is much more than a party trick. This is laden with significance. There's three things we see this morning. In verse 11, we see John writes, Jesus did this sign to, you see in verse 11, to manifest his glory, the ESV reads, to show his glory. And the three things we see about how glorious Jesus is, is that firstly, this is no party trick, no, no, this is this is Jesus the creator. Secondly, this is Jesus the Christ. And thirdly, this is Jesus the bridegroom, the real, ultimate bridegroom. Firstly, we need to see that Jesus is the creator. This is what this scene shows us. It opens up with what seems to be an ordinary event. It's a wedding. We go to them all the time. It's currently wedding season. We tend not to have weddings in winter in Australia, but we do. But it's wedding season. It's wedding season for Jesus. And it's a very ordinary event. Look, we see, firstly, the details recorded by John are ordinary details. Why? Why does he just say, well, Jesus' mother's at a wedding and then Jesus is at the wedding, which means Jesus' friends, the disciples are at the wedding. Why does, he, why does he record these things? Because it happened this way. Jesus and the account of Jesus, the gospel of Jesus, it's unlike in contrast to Greek myth of the day. If you want to talk about the gods of the day, and the, the Greek myth wouldn't put ordinary details like this. It wouldn't give you times and dates and, and they went to do this and they went to do some shopping and they went to a wedding. It, 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 this is ordinary. It's, it's, a, it's a biography. This is what happened. It's someone's wedding. And it gets more ordinary than that because at the wedding, it gets embarrassing. It gets embarrassing for Mary, Jesus' mother. You see, why does John note that... The mother of Jesus, who's not named here, but it's Mary. Why does, it, why does he note that Mary's there? Because I think that this is actually a family wedding. It's in Cana, in Galilee, where Jesus is from. It's probably an extended, wider family wedding. Mary's there. Jesus is there, therefore. And Jesus' disciples, well, they get to come along because they're his, you know, plus ones. They're all there. And Mary feels it when the wine runs out. That's why it's mentioned, I think. She feels it. It's embarrassing. Think of Mary. 
Of all the embarrassment she's already been through in her life, she's already gone through the shame and the embarrassment of publicly and well-known is Mary because she conceived a child not yet married to Joseph and she's been living it down ever since. In fact, in John's Gospel, Jesus keeps living that down. They bring it up. Well, we know who you are. You're that guy conceived out of wedlock. And so this is a, it's an embarrassing thing already. Mary is living in a culture where people know who she is. And then she's at a family wedding and they run out of wine. Of all the social disasters you could have. That would be embarrassing. Especially in a shame culture. But it's the exchange between Jesus and his mother that's more awkward than that. Did you see it? Verse 3, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. They have no wine. And Jesus says, Woman, what has this got to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Is that more awkward or what? What does this mean? Is, is it kind of like Mary's, it's kind of like Superman's mum, you know, knowing what he can do, I've seen what you can do, I've heard, I know who you are. Is, is she kind of like... Just save the embarrassment, Jesus. Like, our family has been through enough. Can you just make some wine happen, Jesus? And is Jesus' answer kind of like a first century way of saying, Oh, Mom, not in front of my new friends. No. His answer is full of meaning. Everything we see about Jesus is full of meaning. As you read through John's Gospel, you can't help but notice everything's full of meaning, especially these seven signs. John notes them, these signs. You know what a sign does? It keeps pointing ahead to something else. These signs are full of meaning, and that's why Jesus answers the way he does. You see, running out of wine at a wedding, big loss of face. But that's more meaning than that. Think of where they are. They're Israel, God's people. God's Old Testament people on earth, where all the nations will be blessed. Think of the situation Israel's in. They have run out of spiritual wine. They have run out of blessing. They have had loss. In the Old Testament, we know that wine is associated with blessing. Drunkenness in the Old Testament is a sin. Drunkenness in the New Testament is a sin. Yet, in the Old and New Testament, wine is seen as a blessing. Lots of things are gifts of God, but can be abused. Is that not right? We often do it with all God's gifts. Think of them. Sex is a gift of God. And sex is probably one of the most abused gifts in our culture. Food is a gift of God. And food can be abused in our culture. Wine, alcohol, is a gift of God, the Old Testament says, and yet what do we do with it? We abuse it. We do it with friendships. We do it with family. We do it with churches. We do it with authority. We do it with all sorts of things. All these things are gifts of God, and we take them and we turn them into God. And that makes them not suited for the purpose they were designed. Proverbs 20 verse 1. Wine is a mocker and beer is a brawler. And whoever is led astray is not wise. We know drunkenness is the sin, but the substance of alcohol is not. 
when I was growing up in my family and the church I grew up in, it was believed that the substance itself was sinful, like a substance can be sinful. Substances can't be sinful, friends. It's the way it's used. There are lots of substances that can be used very sinfully, very easily, and so we've got to be careful and wise. But an inanimate object can't be sinful. It's disobedient humans, his image bearers, that's where the sin comes from. Our hearts. We've got to get this right because Jesus is very important putting this point before us a lot, as we'll see. Just like we know sexual morality is the sin, sex is yet God's blessing within marriage. And our first reading today from the Old Testament, Psalm 104, we heard this. We heard this in Psalm 104. Wine to gladden the heart of man. It says God gives wine to gladden the heart of man. Oil to make his face shine. Bread to strengthen his heart. Do you see it there? Wine, oil, bread, gifts of God. And yet drunkenness is an Australian epidemic. It's a real problem. It's a social sin we have. And that can be the case for many things. See, even speaking about wine at a wedding for us, in our culture, can be lost in all sorts of unnecessary arguments, can't it? I've heard them. Was the wine alcoholic or not? Would Jesus drink wine if it was alcoholic or not? Was the wine that he made alcoholic or not? In Luke's Gospel, in chapter 7, verse 34, here's the, here's the terrible irony of what they accuse Jesus of. In Luke's Gospel, right, the Pharisees see John the Baptist not drinking wine, and what do they say about him? They say, he's got a demon. <laughs> Can't win. The Pharisees then see Jesus drinking wine with sinners and tax collectors, and what do they say? He's a drunkard. Come on, Pharisees. So what does all this mean? Jesus at a wedding, the wine runs out, Jesus makes water into wine. Interestingly enough, in the ESV where it says they have drunk freely, the Greek word is mestuko, methusko, which means inebriated. They were affected by the wine. They were gladdened in heart. But what does this mean? Here's the point. It means Jesus is the creator. That's who's in the room. How? Psalm 104. It is God who ultimately makes wine to gladden the heart of man. I went to my original degree. was an ag degree, ag science degree. I hung out with a lot of viticulturalists. They make wine. But ultimately, no, it is God who makes the grapes and the provision and the sunlight and everything that makes the wine. And the evidence that we have recorded in this moment in John is that the experts in wine were there. The master of ceremonies is an expert in good wine and bad wine. He's there, historically given to us to say that this wine he tastes and sees is not just some water where there's some added sugar crystals and it was made into cordial. Because anyone can do that. Truly. Look, if I'm at a wedding and they run out of wine, I can get some sugar crystals, I could get some cordial in my pocket, stick it into the water, voila, nothing to see up my sleeve, but now we've got red cordial. Anyone can do that. But that's not what Jesus does. 
Jesus takes a process that takes years and in a moment makes the best wine of the day in a second. This is more than a party trick. This is pointing to who he is. He's the creator himself. He makes wine without hands, without sleight of hand. There's no magic, not many words. Even the servants, right, they're not in on it like magicians' assistants are. They're not in on this. They're just doing what Jesus says. This is a powerful event. And presently in the life of Jerusalem, in the life of Galilee, in the life of Israel, this is, this is God on the guest list. This is not the creator himself uh, up, up, upstairs doing his thing there. The creator is in the room doing his thing. This is amazing. I love learning about lots of things. We're all learning, aren't we? And lately, I've been enjoying reading um, the books my eight-year-old Knox gets from the school library. And he's bringing them home. The latest one he got this week was all about the universe. And so we sat down to read it. Big pictures and great words. And here's what I learnt, right, about the universe. Let me tell you, now, I'm learning, and so some of you may correct me, and that's great. Uh, Thank you. I love the corrections and love the learning in that too. But here's what I learnt from this eight-year-old book, or eight-year-old's book. The sun is a typical star. Its temperature is 15 million degrees Celsius. The book tells me that if you were to take that temperature and have it on a pinprick and stick it in the ground, it would set fire to everything in a 100-kilometer radius. That's how hot it is. The core of the sun is exploding with nuclear explosions constantly. It burns uh, 4 million tonnes of hydrogen a second. 4 million tonnes of hydrogen. I'm sitting there reading this thing going, is that the hydrogen going to run out soon? What does that make you think? How big is the one who made it? How big is God who made the sun? And that's a typical star. And there's billions upon billions of them. And here he is, the same God, the same creator, sitting at a wedding and he's creating wine. Jesus has entered our world. God has come and he even goes to weddings. What does that tell us? It tells us the creator is into fun. The creator is into joy. He's into these things. He's not against these things. He gives them as good gifts. God loves laughter. God loves fun. God loves to see you have joy and not run out. Yet, friends, there's more. He's not just the creator. He's the Christ. When we see Jesus reply to his mother... Jesus says something that we're kind of, what does he mean? Verse 4, he says, my hour has not yet come. What that means is Jesus is saying, his D-Day is not yet here. Throughout John's Gospel, you'll see this phrase again and again. We're going to see it across our series. The hour, the way the hour is used, Jesus is speaking about particularly the hour of the cross. My hour has not yet come. It's like saying, Mum, I'm just getting started. I'm not yet ready to reveal fully who I am. That happens at the cross. When you see Jesus on the cross, you understand, you see who he is. My hour has not yet come. John's Gospel has this all the way through. John 7, verse 30. They're seeking to arrest him. No one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Chapter 12. My soul is troubled. 
What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come for this hour. Chapter 13, Feast of the Passover. We again see this hour, it's about the cross. So when Jesus does this sign, he's actually pointing to a bigger sign. It's got a symbol of a cross. That's the hour that Jesus is heading towards. Do you see this? What does this mean? The Creator doesn't just provide for people. But Jesus, the Christ, the Saviour, who will rescue people in their deepest need, not just in loss of wine, but loss of relationship in abundance with God. Jesus takes some ceremonial washing jars in this scene. It's interesting about the jars. You know, I, 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 I write a sermon first and I do a lot of reading and a lot of different commentators and Look, that can frustrate you or it can fulfill your tank, depending how you like to read and how much you want to read. A lot of commentators make a big deal about the six jars. And I don't think that's actually the big deal. Some people say, oh, Jesus, you know, there's six because it's not quite perfect. There should have been seven. But Jesus doesn't make another jar. If he did, he would have done that. That's not what, that's not what this is about at all. Now, the jars, what's the, what's the point about the jars? Notice the jars, the text tells us. You don't have to guess. See, I think this is the funny thing. We like to guess and make allegory out of all sorts of things. Don't guess. Look at the text. What is significant about the jars? Two things. One, they're named as rites of purification jars. They're for Jewish ceremonial cleansing, cleaning. Secondly, they're made out of stone. See, normally if you're going to get a jar, it's like us. If I'm going to go and get a Coke at Macca's, I get it in that kind of cardboard cup. But you never leave the straw in. Not all day if you're a sipper like me. Because the straw in the cup can turn to, you know what, mush. The Macca's cup of the day was clay, which means it was kind of pervious. If things could move through, it wouldn't be pure and clean. Stone was used because it would be clean. It would represent cleanliness. Nothing gets in, nothing gets out. These are ceremonial cleansing jars. In Mark 7, Jesus tells Pharisees, you guys think just washing your hands makes you clean before God. It doesn't. You need washed hearts, clean hearts. So what does Jesus do? He takes a thing that humans think they'll be clean before God and he says, I'm changing it and making it new. The new wine is here. I am here. I have come to clean you. Washing out of stone jars won't do it. It won't clean you before God. I've come to clean you. You can't clean yourself up. You're the one that got yourself into that mess. I'm the one that gets myself into my sinful mess. I can't clean myself up. By God's grace, he comes to me, to us, to you. He comes to clean you. And he does it with abundance. In 1 John chapter 1, Jesus says that uh, God, God says in his word that Jesus, by his death on the cross, cleanses us from how much unrighteousness, if you know the verse? All of it. Not just this year's, since New Year's Eve. You know, since New Year's Eve, I've been getting better, I've been cleaning my life up, got a new start, new track, new friends. No, it's not he, all unrighteousness. Jesus cleanses you from all unrighteousness, past, present, future. It's a cleansing you can't get just out of some water. It comes by his blood shed. Jesus is the Christ. We saw this in Isaiah 25. That was our second major reading. Isaiah 25, we read, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich foods. There's feasting. 
a feast of well-aged wine. There's wine, rich food, aged wine, well-refined. And then we see in Isaiah 25, verse 7, he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. Verse 8, he will swallow up death forever. He will wipe away tears from your faces. How close do you need to be to wipe away someone's tears? You can't do that from a distance. This is Jesus comes to us tenderly and he cleanses us and he wipes away our tears and he gives us our future hope. The Christ has come. The Christ has come. But we see also he's not just the creator and the Christ. More tenderly, he's the bridegroom. Jesus is the bridegroom. In the Old Testament, God often speaks of himself being a bridegroom for his people. We see in Isaiah 62, the bridegroom rejoices over his bride and your God shall rejoice over you. That's what bridegrooms do. You ever seen a bridegroom on a wedding day? What do they look like? Do they look like this? Oh, comes the bride. Better look ready. <sighs> this is a good decision. I guess. Is that what it looks like? No. Like, have, have you ever, um, I hesitate to call it a game, ever done this at a wedding? It's, it's a fun thing to do. Look at the bridegroom when the bride then enters the room. Like, you get the bridesmaids, or the flower girls and the flower, no, flower boys, page boys. You get the boys and the girls, and you get the, you've got a big bridal train, there's lots of people coming through, and the, the groom's excited, but it's when the bride enters the room, and usually that's when there's a key change in the song, that's when he starts crying. And everyone's looking at him, like, yes, they're looking at her, they're looking at him, it's like, oh, wow, I've never seen him cry, but he's so overwhelmed with emotion because he loves her. He's waited for her. This is Jesus, the bridegroom. He looks at the church and he says, I love the church. Today the church gets a bad rap. We get a dissing. We get it. We even get it from Christians. I understand the church has got a lot of things wrong with us. Hang out with us long enough and you'll see them. You'll see them in me. But when Jesus looks at wrong people, as messy as we are, as fallen as we are, when he looks at people with their faith in him, he loves them tenderly. He says, I, I, compel, I go to the cross for them. I endure it for joy, Hebrews 12. I love them. He's our bridegroom. We are his bride. What does that show us about Jesus? What does that show us here in this moment? Here is Jesus at a wedding. And what is Jesus doing at a wedding? He's thinking forward. His hour has not yet come, but his hour is coming when he won't marry a girl in Galilee. No, his hour is coming when he, as the bridegroom, is going to lay his life down for the bride so he gets to have her forever and we get to have him. He's thinking about the wedding of all weddings, the last day that's coming. In Revelation 19, last book of the Bible, we see this ending in picture form presented for us. Revelation 19, the angel says to John, I find this interesting, John who writes John's Gospel also writes 1 John, which we quoted earlier, and writes Revelation. He's a bit busy, isn't he? John is the only disciple who ends up living to old age. He actually is exiled in the Isle of Patmos. He writes this book and he has this vision and he says, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb, quoting this angel. 
Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. There is a wedding, a feast, a day coming that goes forever. And friends, it's going to be fun. It is actually going to be fun. What we see in the bridegroom of Jesus is he's not just the creator who treats us as his creatures. He comes in tenderly and treats us as his beloved Jesus is the sin-shouldering saviour. Jesus is the judge who is judged for those deserving judgment. Jesus is the death-defeating, grave-breaking, life-giving, people-loving bridegroom. Friends, we can now see this as more than a party trick. This is the one who will satisfy us forever. So what is there for us to do now? Verse 11. Look at verse 11. John 2, verse 11. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. What is the appropriate response? Is to see his glory, see your future, and believe, friends. Believe. You could look at the details of this scene and there's a few things that I think are helpful and instructive. Like, look at the details. Jesus cares for the little details. If you want to know how much Jesus cares, he cares for details, even at a wedding if wine runs out. Like, if I'm there, it's no biggie for me. But Jesus cares about little things because he cares about the little people. He cares about his mum. He cares about those who have needs, like uh, you. Secondly, Jesus doesn't do party tricks. He does signs. And not to impress us. He doesn't do it to impress us so we go, wow, I did not see that sleight of hand. I did not see that prestige coming. No, no, he does it as a sign pointing to who he is for you. For who he is is the bridegroom who will purify you. Jesus takes ceremonial jars of cleansing, fills them to the brim, with how much cleansing he brings for your sin. On the last supper that night, Jesus speaks of a cup. It's a cup of judgment that he will take. He will drink that cup so that we can drink the cup of festivities of being forgiven forever. In the opening of John's Gospel, John says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and get this, guys, we've seen his glory. Have you seen how glorious Jesus is? Have you seen his glory? Like, gaze into his glory in his word and see how that actually changes your life. It will change your life. Jesus changes water into wine, but when you see Jesus in John's gospel, everything Jesus touches, he changes, including you. And for us now, we can either be like the MC, the master of ceremonies that day, because the MC that day in verse 9, he, and I'm just quoting verse 9, did not know where the wine came from. He didn't even bother. In fact, he goes up to the hapless groom of the day and goes, oh, you're serving the best stuff. And the groom's there grinning going, yeah, I did. <laughs> I don't know. What was he talking about? The MC doesn't even know. He doesn't even care to find out. 
But the disciples, they see and they believe, John writes. Do you see? Could you believe? Today is your hour to see and believe. The sin of our world, the human evil, has broken what should be beautiful. And where there ought to be lots and an abundance, there's just loss and lack all over the world. And, And our hope for fullness, we look for different things, often runs out. And we often believe that lie of Satan that he whispers in our ear. God doesn't want what's good for you. God doesn't want you to have fun. We believe that lie. But Jesus comes into the world of lies and lack and he comes to give us joy in him. Christianity is a joyful movement. Following Christ is a joyful thing. In a world where following, in a world where having fun is often forced, and it's phony. Jesus comes in and says, you can have, even have joy and sorrow. Like That's real fun. To have joy and sorrow. How? Because your hope is secured with him for your future. We can be tempted to cling to this world. We often find it tempting. We live in a world where we settle for anything, don't we? We just settle. This makes me temporarily happy. I'll settle for that. I know it won't last. We think life is boring without chasing the next thing. Church services might be boring, but who said church services have to be boring? Friends, life is often boring because we make it boring. And we do that when we take our focus off Christ. But if you look to Christ and see the glory of Christ, he is not boring. Christ at his cross is anything but boring. The wedding feast of Christ is promised. It's the opposite of boring. We are not going to be bored in heaven as if it's one long endless church service that's boring. No, we are going to be enjoying God forever. Jesus gives us a taste of what is to come. He fulfills all expectations. He foreshadows your future if you have your faith in him. Let's pray we will. Let's pray right now. Our Father in heaven, we have seen your glory in who Jesus is. And so we praise you. You are a loving bridegroom and so we thank you. We're asking now you would help us to believe in you. We ask this. Please change our lives. In Jesus' name. Amen.